Sermon Notes. Uh, this is our weekly podcast where we as a church are studying through letters and books of the Bible, and we want to come alongside you and just give some additional uh, some additional thoughts, some notes, some things that maybe uh, we didn't have time to address in uh, in the sermon from the stage. And so uh, I'm Garland. I'm Michael. We're here with Josh, our capable producer. He makes it all happen around here. And uh, we're, we, we introed the letter to Timothy, first letter to Timothy, uh, last podcast, and now we're diving in. And so uh, as a church, we study books of the Bible. We work through and we work through them expositorily. We try to see verse by verse by verse what's going on in this particular book, in this particular letter, in this case. And uh, the first sermon that we're going to be giving, and, and if you're following along in small group, it'll be the first small group lesson will be on uh, the first 11 verses of First Timothy. So Michael, give us an overview, kind of set the stage for us. Yeah. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first episode, I would suggest going back and just picking up who is Paul, who is Timothy. That's how the letter begins. Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Paul's established that he's an apostle, that he has credentials, that Timothy's his son in the faith, and that this is going to be a letter concerning spiritual things. And then uh, if you're using the NIV as I am, mine says, Timothy charged to oppose false teachers. And that's really the gist of these first 11 verses. Paul says there are certain people who are teaching false doctrines. That word doctrines really just means teaching. Um, They're teaching false teachings. um, And he commands Timothy um, to stop them from promoting what he calls myths, endless genealogies, controversial speculations. And he says in verse five, the goal of the command is love. Then he goes on to say, these guys, they want to be teachers of the law. And when Paul references the law, uh, he could be talking about the Ten Commandments. He could be talking about the first five books of the Bible. He could be talking about the entire Old Testament. Uh, But however he's using it here, it seems that these teachers were taking the Old Testament and using it inappropriately. And uh, I base that conclusion partly on the fact that um, when we look at verse 9 and following, Paul seems to take the Ten Commandments one by one and give extreme examples of commandment breaking. Um, And then he finishes up by saying, um, their teaching should conform to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me, me being Paul. And so, uh, Garland, I think the big idea of this first section of the book is that we are to oppose teaching that is not in line with the gospel, the gospel message being that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was Israel's Messiah and the earth's true king, and that through his death and resurrection, we can be reconciled to God the Father, and that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And so Paul says any teaching outside of that, um, whether it comes from the Old Testament or not, that's, uh, that doesn't conform to the gospel, then that is a false teaching, that is a wrong teaching. And I I want us to focus on the fact that in verse five, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so um, I think there's a big heart check there for all of us. We wanna stand for truth, but we wanna do it in love. And so Garland, one of the things I was hoping you might could unpack with me, um, I really enjoyed in my study was unpacking some of these Greek terms that we find in the passage, and your Greek's a whole lot better than mine. Uh, what are some of the words that stand out to you that that maybe would be of interest to our listeners? Um, well, just even looking through this, we're going to have to figure out and understand. And, and one of the goals even of this podcast is 
whether whether you whether it comes across this way or not, uh, whether it shows on a Sunday or not, uh, we spend we spend several weeks processing all of these passages as uh, as a teaching team and a broader uh, team here at our church, and uh, we want to be effective in, in handling the scriptures. Um, and a lot of those conversations sometimes spill out of that meeting into uh, broader conversations. And you and I have spent I don't know several 30 or 45 minute little sessions working through different parts of this. So things that jump out to me are what is going on with the word law? What does Paul mean by law here? What is the false doctrine he has in mind? I mean, you and I, uh, I nerded out and tried to just, I was like, what is happening here? And then obviously uh, some of the the list of words, uh, those words in starting in verse nine and 10, they jump off the page to modern readers. Uh, and some of those words uh, that he that he labels as contrary to sound doctrine are things that are kind of hot button issues now. And so, uh, as this podcast has been designed, uh, what are some of the things that you probably don't have time to get into all of these? But as you've worked through uh, your study on this, that people listening to this podcast would go, "Man, I want to know more about that." Yeah, I think you're bringing up the law is good. Um, Paul says in verse eight, "We know that the law is good," and so I think. As 21st century followers of Jesus, a lot of times we think um, gospel, grace, good, law, bad. Uh, But that's definitely not what's presented in Scripture. And so um, Paul pits the gospel against the law in the book of Galatians when people are trying to tell um, Christians that they have to follow the law. Um, But Jesus and Paul both affirm that the law is good uh, when it was used for its intended purpose. And so its intended purpose was for God to mark out a people, a distinct people. Um, That would be the nation of Israel. Um, And Israel, of course, was unable to keep the law as we are unable to keep the law. And so when Paul mentions the law here, it's not as something that's opposed to grace. Um, He he says the law is good if one uses it properly. And And the use that he seems to be referring to here. Um, is the law's role as a tutor, that the law, the law shows us the places that we fall short, the places that we don't live up to God's standard of holiness. And that's why Paul unpacks these egregious examples of law-breaking. And so, for example, Garland, when he says um, the law is for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, then rather than saying those who don't honor their parents, he says those who kill their fathers and mur- mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, that's the Greek word you and I have discussed at length, porneia, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders. Slave traders seems to be uh, lined up with the command not to steal. And so he's giving extreme examples of commandment breaking to highlight the role of the law, which is to point us to Christ. Yeah, so um, so help us as we're as we're studying this, and like I said, uh, a lot of this stuff are side conversations that you, you may not have time to unpack. What what in verse three? False doctrines. Watch out for false doctrines. We uh, a lot of scholars think that Paul even invents a word here. Uh, so it's it's a compound Greek word. There's these false doctrines that are out there. Uh, and then he, he talks about them by describing them as myths and in, endless genealogies. I think for a lot of us, we're like. Genealogies are those parts of our Old Testament that we skip because they're boring. How could anybody be devoted to those? Uh, help us see maybe what's going on behind the scenes of this uh, here in this city of Ephesus. So we know 
Modern scholarship has told us that at this time, there was sort of a folk religion that grew around taking Old Testament characters. So pulling someone out of a genealogy or pulling a minor character out and then creating basically a myth around that character. And so, you know, we see that in in the modern world, um, things that we think are true about someone like George Washington probably never actually happened. Um, did he chop down a cherry tree? Who knows? But that's part of his mythology. I like to think he did. Like, yeah, yeah with, I, don't know, I don't know why that's important. Like, is that hard to do? Is it <laughs> is that like hard to cut down? I never understood why that was a big deal. Because he didn't lie about it. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're so, right. So at the time that Paul is writing to Timothy, we know that there were fanciful stories about Old Testament figures that are completely extra biblical but that people took for truth. And so um, we can take the fact that we know that and lay it over this letter, and it seems like perhaps there were leaders in the church in Ephesus. Um, If we go back to Acts, we see that Paul actually warns the Ephesian elders, there will be wolves who come in among you, meaning those who are not true followers of Jesus. And so it's possible that Paul's prophecy has already come true at this point, that there are people in the leadership in Ephesus who are taking Old Testament characters and passages and truths, and they are creating uh, myths around those people or propagating myths that Paul is going to say later in the passage are contrary to the gospel. And so the litmus test for us today would be when we encounter a teaching that's new or novel or proposes to have some new insight into Scripture is, does it line up with the rest of Scripture? Does it stack up with what's commonly, as the saying goes, believed by everyone everywhere? So orthodoxy. Um, If it's not, then that should set off a red flag for us, just as it did for Paul and Timothy, that maybe these teachings are what Paul calls false doctrines. Yeah, and as Paul says in verse 11, does it conform to the gospel? And the gospel is the message that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. He's the promised one that deals with their exile and their sin. And therefore, because of his resurrection, he's the true Lord of the entire world. He's the king that is worthy uh, to submit to. Um, And so that's a good uh, check. If you want further, just what might some of these sound like? uh, You can Google this. Uh, First Enoch would be an example of one of these potential genealogies. Uh, There's actually a, uh, you said, taking characters and having endless speculation about them. Uh, there's a bunch of these in ancient in ancient Jewish culture around the time of when this is being written. There's one about Melchizedek. I mean, it goes, uh, pick a character in the Old Testament that you can pretty much find uh, some kind of a myth. And there seems to be some kind of Jewish mythology, genealogy simmering in the background of this. And they're misappropriating, misunderstanding, therefore, uh, what the law has been designed to do. The law was designed, if you go look at Exodus 19, to help make a holy nation, uh, that would then be a light to all the nations to say there is a a creator God who is good and who is king, and it's Israel's God. And uh, we, we we see through the pages of the Old Testament that Israel, uh, they were the rebels who couldn't obey that. So to then, to then dive back into the law and try to make it do something that it can't do seems to be a little bit of what Paul has uh, in the background here, and he's trying to correct that for them. Yeah, he goes so far in verse 6 to say, they've turned to meaningless talk. Then he says... 
They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. That sounds like today, modern yes, America. <laughs> yes, and I think we're all at risk of that. When someone speaks authoritatively, especially on spiritual things, it's in our flesh. It's our natural impulse to listen to that person and to consider what they say. And Paul wants Timothy and the church at Ephesus to recognize that what these teachers are saying is meaningless. It's only leading to pointless speculation. And and the antidote to that is in verse five. Love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the problem with those three things, Garland, is that those are all internal. I can't look at you and tell if you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what I have to use to judge that by is your life. When I look at your life, do you have, um, in Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says, um, judge the outcome of a leader's life. And so um, when we have people who are close to us, our community group leader, our men's or women's group leader, the elders of our church, the church staff that we look to for leadership, um, we can see their life. We can see if they have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so I think we have to be cautious about listening to people who seem to have fringe ideas, especially when it comes to spiritual things, who we have no relationship with. We're listening to them online. Maybe they have a YouTube channel, whatever it is. Um, We want to be very discerning um, if they're teaching things that seem to be at odds with an orthodox understanding of Scripture, and we don't know them, so we can't judge their life and their faith. So there's a thorny little issue in this passage. Uh, And if you're reading this and studying along with us, uh, it just jumps off the page in modern, kind of our modern culture that we live in. It's there in verse 10 for the sexually immoral. And it's a, it's a noun. Uh, it comes from the Greek word, uh, porneia. So, uh, the next word is, and for though the NIV is translating this as for those practicing homosexuality, also a noun, both of these are, uh, Greek nouns. Porneia is a word that obviously we get our root word, uh, now for pornography. Um, in the first century world, porneia was one of these difficult to define concepts. Different philosophies in ancient Greek and Rome defined it differently. Uh, what is porneia? What counts as sexual immorality? And what seems to be consistent in the New Testament? This is very unusual. The ancient Roman world was wildly promiscuous. Uh, uh, sexuality was very, very, uh, we would call it loose uh, compared to even our modern American culture. And there's still debate on what porneia is, but it's very general. It's not all that specific. And what the New Testament writers seem to do universally is, and it's shocking, they restrict the word porneia to any sex acts that take place outside of a committed marriage. And that was unheard of in the ancient Roman world. You had your wife, of course, for, you know, to have legitimate heirs, but then you had a mistress and you went to the baths and you had prostitutes that you met with and you had cult prostitutes for worship so for Paul to come along and say, to res- and, and Jesus does the same thing, to restrict the word porneia's meaning to all sex acts outside of uh, the covenant of marriage, the, the audience hearing this would be like, what? What, you want me to do that? And what, what's interesting is that's exactly how a lot of the modern audience hears this. Wait a sec, you want me to be that restrictive with my sexuality? And he follows it with this word. Uh, the Greek word is arsenokoites. You don't have to know the Greek word. Uh, we, don't, we don't have an outside of the Bible example of this word. So it seems as if maybe Paul's even coined the word. It literally means uh, male 
bed, male bed. Or so we get our word coitus from coites. So it means bed or home, male bed. Um, what does that noun mean? So he's defining this category, male bedders. Uh, and it's in this long list of other nouns of, of, of things he says that are contrary to sound doctrine. And most scholars think that what Paul has in mind there uh, is uh, one who go a man, a, in this case, likely a Roman man, who goes to bed with another man, widely practiced in the ancient Roman world, uh, something that nobody th- was coming along thinking, you know what, this is, this is out of bounds. And Paul comes along and restricts uh, sexuality to sex acts to one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And he says anything outside of that, including arsenokoites, seems to be contrary to sound doctrine. And so uh, this is one of the, the handful of passages in the New Testament that address uh, the Christian sex ethic. And I'll, I'll just say as a, as a total aside, if you're, if you're listening to this, um, you're studying this, you're going along with us in our study, and you got questions on that, and you're like, I don't understand this, or I don't like that, please, please reach out to us. We would love to process that with you, what that looks like, what that means. Um, we're trying to teach the Bible faithfully, and we're trying to do it as well as we can. Um, so we would love to process that with you if you find yourself there. Don't shut down. Uh, and we'd love to just just walk alongside you if you're going, I need to know more about that. Any, any, any comment? The, the next word we'll talk about a little bit more as we get later on in the book. Um, man, uh, stealers, man, under, under servants. It's, it's this idea of slavery. Now, it may be worth noting one of the attacks of the Bible right now is that it, Paul never condemned slavery. I'd beg to differ. He, he's, he doesn't come out and give an, uh, a long treatise against slavery, but this is sitting here in Paul's condemnation. And so uh, I think we have to wrestle with that as we take on that issue here in our modern culture. Obviously, way more to, to speak on that, but we'll talk about it here in a few chapters. Yeah, that's good, Garland. I think one thing to note on this uh, list of commandment breakers is almost all of them deal with the way people relate to each other. And so... Um, the way that we treat one another is important to God. And so Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? How do you summarize the whole law? He said, love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. So we often shorten that to love God, love others. And so I think as you gather in your community groups or your small groups and you discuss this passage, uh, we want to focus on love. The goal of the command, verse five says, is love. And the way we treat other people should be motivated by love. And then I think this is a good opportunity to rehearse the gospel in your group. Every time we share the gospel with each other, even if we're all believers gathered there, God is glorified in that. We're all encouraged in that. And so maybe 1 Corinthians would be a good, 1 Corinthians 15 would be a good place to turn to, but to make sure that everyone in the group understands the good news of Jesus Christ right off the bat and that that's going to inform everything as we work our way through this letter. Everything we're going to read in this letter is going to point us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then I think, lastly, would be to spend some time in your group just praying and asking the Lord to help you and your group rightly divide his word, rightly understand some of the difficult topics we're going to face in this book, um, to have a spirit of, of love and charity for each other. Um, to have some willingness um, to hear people who maybe don't agree on everything as we work our way through this, um, but always with a spirit of love and charity that comes from a sincere heart, a clean conscience, and a sincere faith. 
Well, uh, if you're, if, like I said, like we say frequently, if you're listening to this, um, we actually just did a gospel sermon just a few weeks back in our Mission Vision series on what is the gospel. So if you're going, wait, I want a refresher on that, go go give that a listen. We have our Timothy books, our first Timothy books that our media resourcing team did a great job putting those together. And they're going to walk alongside week by week with the sermon, uh, what we're teaching on Sunday morning, what we're hopefully doing in, our, in many of our small groups. Uh, grab that book, uh, join us in this journey. Um, we hope this is uh, helpful in helping you uh, make sense of uh, this letter and these first 11 verses, and that we might be able to, to reteach it in our discipleship and our groups, and we would follow Jesus. So uh, have a great day.